The reading for today is found in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. In those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man is coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away. Okay, sorry about that. This generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Word of God, word of life, I have a text to share, and that is from Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we didn't expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord. Do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. Word of God, word of life. Thanks be to God. 
Sometimes you hear the reading from Scripture and it's obviously an intellectual exercise. Like maybe there's a lesson being taught by Jesus and it's a lesson we need to learn and so we study it and learn it. Or maybe there's a theological claim to make sense of in the reading. God created and so we're, hmm. Or God shows up at all times and all places or God will make all things new and so we, hmm. But today's reading from Isaiah, that, that has a different vibe to it. Way different, actually. It's a part of the Bible that goes way past our heads. It's not even a text that comes for the heart. I would describe this text from Isaiah as one that comes from the gut, from the depths of the most difficult feelings and questions that we as humans have in our relationship with God. I mean, talk with anyone who has sat with another who suffers from Alzheimer's, maybe they're among the few people on earth that they love the most, and they don't even know their name. More than once, I have wondered. I know others have sat in prayer in rooms like those, in those moments, asking why. God, why allow for this kind of disease to exist, much less go on and on and on? And I'm picking on one of the most obviously heart-wrenching diseases, but really, we kind of think this way about all disease. Cancer can be sick and cruel. Autoimmune disease can be torturously painful. Sudden injury, disease, or death, that can be just as awful in different ways for all involved. That God allows suffering to happen at some point in this life, we all ask, why? Are you even there, God? Because if you are, why? Why allow it? And then we see these awful things happening in this world. Child trafficking, child abuse, violent crime, accidents, war. Why? Creator of everything, more powerful than everything else combined. Are you just watching this garbage? Like, hello? Maybe you've heard some of the best efforts at making sense of all this. Free will has a price. I've heard that one before. For the good that comes from every good decision we can make, there are terrible consequences to the bad decisions we do make. This idea implies, of course, that we are responsible for the pain and the suffering in the world because we misuse free will. I eat too much sugar over my lifetime, and therefore, what? Do I deserve Alzheimer's, known to some as type 3 diabetes? Or I live in a world where generations have disregarded how toxic all the pollution we produce is to our bodies. So does that mean we deserve cancer? Or here's another effort to make sense of sorrow. Grief is the price we pay for love. Is it? Must I grieve as payment for falling in love with someone? Or for generously giving my compassion, my care, my kindness, my vulnerability, loving like that? Must I then pay for loving like that? Some say we can't fully experience love if we don't already know suffering. That maybe that's the reason for suffering. Like a sunny day can only feel sunny if you've had three weeks straight of clouds before that. Is that true? Why does suffering get to happen at all? Why does God allow for pain? 
Where is God in the loneliest moments of our grief? Must I hurt? Must we hurt? Must there be war to eventually have peace? Must there be crisis in order to appreciate calm? We've got questions. We humans have questions, lists of questions, and the Judeo-Christian tradition is to bring these lists of questions to God, not to hide them in fear that God's going to strike us down just for asking. And so the Bible shows us example after example of God's people boldly bringing their feelings, their questions, even accusations at God, all in prayer believing that God cares enough about us to respond. Maybe not the way we want, but we believe that the bond God made with us is so strong that God doesn't remain absent or aloof if ever God was to begin with. Sometimes, though, people in prayer do wait, and we don't like to wait. We don't like to wait for a microwave to do its thing. Like, come on, I don't have all minute. Some of us are old enough to remember what it was like to stare at a phone, trying to will it to ring. Like, oh, I want her to call so bad, but nothing for hours. Or we text someone. Have you ever done this? You text someone, bloop, little cloud goes out to them. And on some phones, on some apps, we can see they read it, and then we wait as they type out their response, and there's those dots that you can see they're typing something, those ellipses. Have you ever seen those dots? And you're like, come on! It's been like 30 seconds. Let's go! Waiting, at its worst, pushes our imaginations into overdrive. She's still not home. Maybe she got into an accident. He didn't call. Did I say something? Did I do something? Was it that? That thing didn't arrive in the mail yet? Maybe something went wrong. Maybe I didn't order it ever to begin with. What happened? This is waiting at its worst. When waiting creates questions grounded really in nothing but speculation and guesses. Isaiah, in this section of the book, represents Israel waiting, imparts at their worst. The prayer begins, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. It's like Isaiah is saying, get down here. Where are you? If you don't remember the plot lines of Isaiah, the first half of it is Isaiah warning Israel that exile's coming, like bad stuff is on its way. Our lack of faith The distance we keep adding between ourselves and God, it's not good. Babylon's coming to take take us, to, to use our land. And then that happens, and so the second part of Isaiah is the after of all that. Isaiah names the hope they share in the aftermath of the worst. That there will be a new Jerusalem. That God's kingdom will come, as we say in the Lord's Prayer. And what's beautiful in this relationship Israel has with God is that part of how they have hope is that they know how true, how real, how alive their relationship with the living God really is. 
it is so real, so alive, that they can vent their feelings right at God, shake their fist at God, lament at God, which means ask their deepest questions, feel their deepest feelings, even accuse unfairly at times, you know, like people who care about each other do from time to time. Those who trust each other deeply are willing to admit their deepest fears, their deepest hurts. Not just in an effort to serve their self, to get it off their own chest, but to serve the relationship. When those toxic resentments build up, when the unfair questions and feelings of hurt fester and are allowed to grow, need to come out. Those things need to be said. Those things need to be felt. And that's what Isaiah models. Israel had suffered exile. They have been literally tortured, isolated, separated from their loved ones, all the worst things that can happen in this world. And they are now ready to come back to God. Another word for that is repent, come back. You were angry, Isaiah says in prayer. You were angry and we sinned because you hid yourself, we transgressed. That's just being honest with his feelings. May not be right. Isaiah may not be right here, but it is how he feels. Isaiah wants God to admit some blame too. That God hid is why Israel made bad choices, is what Isaiah is asserting. I wonder how God might respond to that one, but more than blaming God, Isaiah is interested interested in admitting that Israel broke the covenant relationship too, in almost every way. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. It's kind of a half apology. (laughs) There's definitely complaint in there too. There's testimony about God's goodness. There's a lot. But the whole thing starts with a plea. It all starts with that invitation to God. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Tear open. It's an important phrase to understand here because it's not meant to simply evoke a, a functional image of tearing open a letter or a package or something as though the point is to get at the thing that's in the package. This is the kind of tear open that the tearing open is what means something. And it means something heartbreaking. Other parts of Scripture speak of this kind of tearing open. When a a person rends their garment, literally tearing the cloth that is on their body, it's a dramatic display, kind of like tearing your own hair out. But it means something way different than that because rending a garment, it's not done out of frustration or anger at someone else. It's done with a sense of personal responsibility. It's done out of grief and lament and remorse. So when Isaiah Isaiah says, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, it's not just get down here and save us already. It's like 
the heavens are God's garments, and Isaiah is saying, rend your garments. Admit your part in this dysfunction we're all suffering with. Get down here, and don't just be sad, be sorry. Can you believe Isaiah talks to God like that? Don't just be sad, be sorry. They fight like an old married couple who are well-practiced at trust and at honesty and at love, which I think is a pretty good metaphor, actually, for how Israel and God relate. Isaiah voices the people's lament and is inviting God, lament right back at us. Be with us. Rip open whatever barrier there is between you and us, and let's go. Come. Because when you do, we believe that the hurt, the resentments, the suffering will be healed, will be made new. Because that's what happens with us. You love us. We love you. So come now. The distance between us needs to be bridged so that we can be your people. Notice that last line of that text I read. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord. Don't remember iniquity forever. Remember, we are all your people. Come now. It's a weird, unusual text, isn't it? Church people are typically nice people. We don't usually pray during worship in such a way that we allow ourselves to sound like we're angry at God or frustrated that God is too distant or maybe is in any way responsible for the suffering we're experiencing. We never pray prayers of, yeah, you feel hidden from us or maybe are a part of why things are the way they are. We don't often wonder out loud together whether maybe God is hiding. In public prayer, we don't usually accuse God of making our lives harder, and yet we oftentimes wonder in private, in our desperation, in our grief, if that kind of thing is true. Well, the first Sunday of Advent is a time for us to enter into this ancient tradition that stands boldly in the bond God made with us at baptism, believing that our faith relationship with God can handle these kinds of thoughts, these kinds of questions, these kinds of doubts, prayers. Advent is a time of waiting. And sometimes waiting is like a a warming glow that just gets warmer and fuzzier until, yay, the celebration we've been waiting for arrives, like getting closer to a wedding day or to a birth. But sometimes waiting just feels scary and desperate. First week of Advent names that and invites us all to pull those private questions, those private doubts and fears and resentments, pull them out. Pull them into the community, into the body of Christ, where it all gets met in grace by the one who did come, whose birth we now again wait for, whose body and blood we today commune through, whose love is here, really, present among us who've gathered now. For a God able and willing to lament with us for a God who chose to be born as one of us, 
for a God who remains with us again today and promises to be truly present again tomorrow. Even in our wonder, even in our frustrations, our questions and our doubts, in faith, together we say thanks be to God. Amen.